Miss Mackintosh, My Darling, Chapter 36.1 Mr. Spitzer, though ordinarily polite to the point of painfulness, his brother would never have had such patience at the shore, would arouse himself from his patent lethargy just long enough to make the accusation brief, acrid, unassuming, a sudden spurt of bright energy which seemed to pass like something almost outside his dark, heavy consciousness, that which seemed always waterlogged. Perhaps as surprising to him as to my mother, to state the fact that she had never loved any living being, not even when, as it certainly appeared, he was dead and he was in, the gra in his grave. And the only miracle was this routine of daily continuing life, no less for him than for the evening stars among the bulrushes gleaming like rushlights, the floods creeping at the low stoop of his door, the whistling winds, the lean watchdog barking at his shadow, playing with a bone, for there's nothing but this repetition which was meaningless to him, utterly without validity and imitation of life, and he was the counterfeit of himself, this face which passed for his face and yet was not his identical face. Though others should recognize him and torment him by their mystified recognition, more mystifying to him than to them, certainly. For they were casual strangers who recalled those past events he did not know, those broken continuities which he was trying to understand. But who knew the hidden man, that man he might never be, neither himself nor his twin brother? <clears throat> Perhaps that man who should have been born alone, as he must die alone. How often when he stepped upon the solid ground, it was water running under his feet. It was the surf, the booming, buzzing, a cursed tide, the nightmare ocean where all must change identities, sleeping under the salty waves. That was life, but he was also near his death, never more than a step away from it. Perhaps not so far as a step. He was sure that he must hear, a minute after others heard them. Church bells ringing in a distant valley, or a train whistle at a lonely crossing. Each sound reaches a dead ear always a minute late. He was always in danger of walking into the path of a hurtling vehicle. Fearful of bodies falling through space, he looked continually upward into an indefinite sky. Sometimes he heard only such dialogues as one might hear in a dream, or fitful conversations traced upon the enclosed air a decade ago. The shrill whistle of silk, the friction of pebbles troubling by, troubled by roaring surf. Perhaps when wrapped in his silent music, he had not thought he was listening, for his attention had wandered. He had thought he was listening to the music of the spheres, that which no one else had heard. And that was why he tried to be so accurate, because accuracy was impossible in this mistaken world, because there was always a discrepancy between an event and his consciousness of it. But by that discrepancy he lived, because every finger was singing a little off key, and every instrument was false. His eyes were separated from his ears, his reactions were retarded, and thus both pitiful and ridiculous. He saw the traffic signals always a little late, heard the musician only when the music had ceased, when the almighty overture was no more though the music was never complete. So he lived at the second remove from reality, as he would sometimes hesitantly conclude, his flaccid lips trembling and wet with the evening dew, his milky eyes gleaming in the purple darkness. At the second remove from life, the second remove from death, and what more could happen to him? Yet he sometimes felt that as if he should do something he had inexplicably never done before. There should pass through, through his mind, winging like a blackbird, an alien thought, one not familiar to him in some other life. If he should suddenly tap his foot upon the polished floor, or move creepily from side to side, or dress in clothes other than these funeral clothes, the somber black which he recalled he had worn ever since his brother's death, if he should forget to wear his wristwatch or carry his cane, then all the skies might fall upon his head, break like mirrors into a thousand splintered fragments, and he would be lost, irretrievably lost, like all the others. My mother would not know him, and he would not know himself, this familiar face a little altered by time. 
and there would be no world, not even this world of her imagination or of her mistaken memory. Thus he was conservative where she was radical. It seemed to him that she had never distinguished between imagination and memory, the thinnest line sometimes dividing them, a line thinner than the thinnest thread of starlight or moth spittle hanging in a cloud, weaving a moth pearl or swelling to a moon or a universe, perhaps an invisible line that never, like him, this responsible citizen of this world with the grave and erroneously punctual airs, had she been forced to make as to imprecise matters, as was this task continually, precise judgments which would be important. Larger than the immediate moment, larger than the past or future, abide by them perhaps when they had got been wrong, or when their consequences should be the opposite of his intention, when the greatest sorrow should be turned into this joke, perhaps a joke including sorrow, or correct the errors of illusions by errors even more imponderable, more mistaken than the errors he had corrected. She had accused him of absent-mindedness and of leading after his brother's untimely death. He could never be certain of the hour, a double life, a life of moral duplicity, a life half in the shadow. If half in the shadow was the other half in life, he had led a single life knowing he was dead. Perhaps the mistake could never be corrected. There would be no way to change the flaw, the warping with which reality began. My mother, and undoubtedly she was an incorrigible lover of the dead, just as Mr. Spitzer tremblingly knew, could be concerned not with Mr. Spitzer's insistently illegate problems, however, not even at this late date when, if he had been truly and irrevocably dead, gone beyond the call, he should have been almost forgotten both by herself and by his superficial brother, who had had no powers of memory, or whose memory had been only in his own behalf, only for self-preservation, for keeping his own skin whole, as one might continue one's mode of fleeting existence from one's past into one's present life. So one should be unified by every moment and all of one piece and not broken, for she was concerned, now so many years after Cousin Hannah's amazing life and death, with that fearlessly adventurous cousin's many problems of personal unity, burning like flame or like a lost star, seeming to press upon her now with an ever-increasing insistence, demanding her undivided attention as if they were immediate and not already resolved, as if the last rooster had not already crowed over her, shedding its golden feathers through a cloud, as if she had not found herself in some other realm, perhaps out of the eternal darkness. Darkness was the greater part of life. Our star's light did not reach out far, did not illumine the entirety of space. It was feeble, as one firefly in the heavens of the universe tossing like a wild sea of milky light. Or perhaps that great captain of reason had lost herself, sometimes my mother thought with almost equal certainty, always changing her mind just at the moment of crucial decision. She was always very brilliant at building a road to a conclusion she would not reach, though step by step it had seemed inevitable. Her ways, in fact, were so very frenetic that, though outwardly trying to maintain his serenity and his unbaffled calm and his dignity as one who was beyond the flow of time, like some old seashell already pulverized by a thousand tides or some old boat dashed against a thousand lighthouse rocks, Mr. Spitzer would grow seethingly impatient in his heart, knowing that his salutary reasonings and his mild reproaches would be of no avail to bring her back to reason, as if it were itself not another human fallacy, a lost project, most unreasonable. So that he would sigh, yawn, creak, tap with his cane upon the floor as highly polished as a mirror, consult his broken watch, hear a church bell like his cape tolling when the wind blew. What could he say to remind her of him? Had he not endured through great tempests and greater calms those which would kill even the undying heart? Hers was undoubtedly the logic of madness, as he had many times pointed out, but with that genuine hesitation which showed his own precarious uncertainty, that of one who walked on clouded waters or clouds, for 
Was he sure he wanted to correct this dream continuing beyond the limits of time, perhaps of space or moral circumstance, as if this one star had forever faded, disintegrated into stardust, wandering without a central star or core or point of return, a spindle by which to wind the wandering threads of light? He almost admired her suddenly reaching some other end than that which she had consciously intended, taking some other road that which he could not have predicted for the life of him, or even if it had been his death, immediate death, without his sigh of memory. But looking back, he could see that this change had always been implicit and perhaps predictable, at least in an unsafe retrospect. There was change even in a frozen world of frozen icebergs, frozen shrouds. He felt great, though he was, and though occupying so great a body in space, that he was somehow withered, shriveled, depleted. Cousin Hannah, unlike himself, was aggrandized, by the pathos of distance. Death had not diminished her. She seemed to have added new dimensions and taken on new ways. She seemed like that dead tree which, only after it is dead, will break into a curiously fig fugitive, wraith-like mist of fading flowers, perhaps upon one single branch. My mother, not easily defeated, not even by time's passage, which should have defeated so many less courageous ladies, not even by stars whirling from the tree of heaven like the sulphurous autumn leaves whirling in the livid sky, by the fissures of rocks and the flowers and stones and the great chasms of which one could not see the depths, the leapings of long-roaring ebony waves where the black coachman was buried, though he was bodiless now, and though at times she saw his lantern eyes where fireflies glittered, the white manes of the running horses streaking the waves, tried to evoke the return of time, and that proud suffrage captain, who had been in grey New England, a warring old maid, urging ladies to arrive and rebel, and who had been in Araby, a great desert king with whistling shrouds, golden tassels flying in the wind, the leader of the light-footed, moon-breasted brigade in a perfumed desert of veils and mists and shrouds, under a sky where all the silver-lighted and rose-lighted heavens had melted together like one great rose trembling with auroral lights, <clears throat> would try to woo her back from somnolent death into this active life as she might woo her other imaginary lovers and loves. Some who had abandoned her, now when, of course, there seemed no possibility, or only the remotest possibility of the great lady's return, before the heavens opened like lightning flashes in the heart of the trembling rose. Now when if she passed, she passed in distance, and she was like lightning without mercurial flashes, thunder without sound of hooves striking on tinder clouds, clouds with no shadow of the great horseman, with his silver turreted head, clouds without a shadow fringing a star flowered a shadow fringing a star flowered meadow, clouds without rain or snow or cloudburst. Besides, even while she had had control over intentions and desires, Cousin Hannah, engaged in so many conflicting struggles simultaneously in distant countries, in windy palace skirmishes and battles of umbrellas and tents, going on so many perilous pilgrimages and foreign missions, pressed upon by a thousand or ten thousand engagements and suffrage battles for the imminent conquest and future subjugation of man, no, sub and future subjection of man, who was her enemy even when he did not know that she existed could not have been persuaded to stay beyond her hour or half hour or quarter hour, the strikings of distraught, fantastic cuckoo clocks. It was impossible to know how she could have been engaged in so many activities without at some time contradicting herself, great military technician though she was, a lady continually consulting her archers. She had been hurried, imperiously urging flight, flightened to Araby, for my mother's sequestered life had not been the most important life to her. There had been, my mother still enviously remembered, her cheeks twitching with jealousy as she turned toward the shadow, so many other ladies to rescue from the despotic one-eyed ogres in darkened rooms, 
Ladies as beautiful as my mother was, and perhaps more beautiful, and with as many darkened mirrors framed by gold, and perhaps some of them had escaped and gone away with her. She did not answer her telephone, still disconnected. There would be only a confused, hen-like cackle of feminine voices or a buzzing in my mother's ears. Or a Boston florist answered, asking my mother if she wanted him to send a funeral wreath or bridal bouquet to her door, the ivory door, ivory door opening upon the door. Perhaps only my mother, with her forever wandering, inattentive mind, had resisted Cousin Hannah, that old bugler of the suffrage movement, with her face dissolving into windy clouds. So why, though my mother waited for many years, should that great peregrine of romantic suffrage return to this darkened house, washed upon by the sea rains and swells, with its roofs crumbling like flowering tides, this old house with its air of perpetual mourning, its gardens of broken lilies and steaming fogs, its dim, unvisited rooms, shrouded furniture and half-strung harps, and tables set for the dead. She had not returned. She remained indifferent, never replying to my mother's cordial invitations, which, though my mother thought of sending them by every imaginable messenger, by morning dove, by winged mercury, and gods of storm, by any traveler going to Asia or Africa, even by a eunuch clothed in satin draperies, one who never would leave home, she had probably not yet sent, having her qualities of evasiveness even now. Irrepressible moods, her desire to escape reality. Just as she had never opened those letters she had inscrutably written to herself and had asked Mr. Spitzer to post, for they were illegible or written in wavy lines like the sea's surface in a calm or written in hieroglyphics she could not read. And she had evaded self knowledge as if it were a funeral bell self pulled above the darkened waters of a dream. She had always been afraid of the sad news she might read, the news that she herself was dead, that she had died in her sleep perhaps with no eyewitness but Mr. Spitzer, who was certainly not an accurate judge of such unholy events, and that she lived, that her life was this form of death. How oft dreaming that she was awake in the candlelighted darkness, she heard the death of the wind, a pale incorporeal body dying as she listened, as she watched the wavering candle flames. Often she wept over the deaths of persons she had never known, never loved until they were no longer the citizens of the world. But which world was it? Perhaps, though she protested otherwise, though she was voluble, voluble in her protest, talkative as a magpie in a dark forest, she knew that the old suffrage captain could not be reached, at least not by the ordinary means of communication, that she had always had her secrecy, that she had changed beyond recognition and was not now the person she had been in this life or had never been, had existed only through my mother's dreams of her. She had passed beyond the farthest verge, she had plunged into that viewless abyss in which there is only the imitation of time and those in which swallows whole cities, rooftops and towers, bridges and busy streets, broad thoroughfares and also those dark alleys, so narrow and crooked that one must go by foot, neither by carriage nor by automobile. Where was she now, my mother often asked. Could Mr. Spitzer tell her? For had he not buried her with anthems, with pealing bells, thunder rolling down the darkening sky, hillstones as big as cannonballs? A cannonade which shook the earth. The earth was shaken from its foundations. Had not both earth and heaven mourned to see her passing? Had not the heavens divided, split apart? Had he not put the old suffrage captain away, hidden her from the face of man, the face of woman? My mother, in her more rational moments, thought that Mr. Spitzer, though he seemed to be searching his failing memory, which was wide-meshed enough to allow the passage of a boat or a star or a city, Though he often refused or failed to distinguish these boundary lines, was being unnecessarily obtuse in his refusal to answer. For if he should maintain his silence, how should he she reach Cousin Hannah now, in order to send her a gilt-edged invitation to winter here, to stop here in her passage? 
If he could not tell her the place, present whereabouts of this old cousin whose place was never known, where was the street, the house, the door, the door of a house which had been demolished long ago or moved brick by brick, column by column, to stone to some other star? Should she, should she send a fleet messenger to a cloud, to all the waters of this world, to all the desert places, the stars, the crystal sands, the sighing winds? Should she send the wind to make its music friction upon the sand? Should she send the slow messenger to overtake the swift, like that horse which stands still, waiting for its rival to come round the track? Old Joaquin's blank-eyed indifference was opposed, an attitude adopted for a moment. He was envious of one who escaped the purlieus of mortality long ago, one who had passed beyond the pearly gates, leaving him behind as his pedestrian in the great city of darkness and of moving light. His envy had never died. Having outlived its subject or its object, he trembled at the thought of that returning spirit. Obviously, he wished to keep my mother in this remote isolation, and love being absent. He wished to have no rival in life or death. He was a man so competitive that if there had been no other rival, there had been no dead brother with his identical face, Lie would have been a rival to himself and still unsatisfied, indulged in his bleak feelings of eternal disappointment, of something forever missing in the nature of things. He was this obstacle, this darkness between my mother and her love, her dead love, it little mattering who that dead love might be, what face it wore, just as my mother had always known, and as she would accuse him, perhaps when he had already turned away into the fog-streaked darkness, his cape billowing in the wind caused by his emotion, he had departed, but she would always be confronted with his returning face, no matter if all else changed. Though asked to other matters, his ignorance might be quite com quite complete, and therefore, as Mr. Spitzer privately considered, so might his knowledge be complete, for total ignorance was total knowledge. My mother thought old Joachim's uncooperative silence was not, as to this particular matter, his ignorance, his oblivion to one whose face was blurred by clouds and winds, for he could so easily have removed her doubts by telling her where cousin Hannah was. Whether above the stars or under the stars, what had become of her whose violence had known no bounds, whose passions death itself could surely never compose? For his own reasons, which were not my mother's reasons, he was oblique beyond necessity, merely pretending not to know where now that great captain had gone. She who had been the queen of the strong-minded while dwelling on this earth. She who had objected to the song of even a male cicada in a starlit cloud. And if he did not know, then he, who should know, my mother asked. And who should tell her the present address of one who had always traveled? If he did not have knowledge, who should have knowledge? If he could not locate her in heaven or on greater earth? Who besides he should know the unlimited space, the horizon never curving, void where there was no voice, where was only the answering silence? And should he not strike a flame in the tinderbox of, tinder of his imagination, a flame burning like a star? My mother thought he should light the darkness. Was it not he who had seen her last? Had she not gone over from across the crescent? Had he not seen the atmosphere of an immortal illness, the changes of her mortal body before the last darkness fell? Had he not seen the dying body in the enclosed air, the dark air scarcely streaked by beams of the fading sunlight? the emaciated face, the shriveled mummy features, the grave forelock, the hands like bird talons clutching at nothing. He had been the last caller there, surely, as he might be the last caller here. Wearing his mournful cape, he had gone to pay his last respects, to carry my mother's message to a dying love. He had sat by her bedside and murmured diffident, distant remarks not calculated to disturb her peace. He was the last eyewitness, the last living person who had seen her, heard her. Had he not heard the death cry like the birth cry, the rattle in her throat? Had she not entered through that door of death, which, though very narrow, is wide enough to admit the skies and the stars, constellations unknown to man, mountains, and dark valleys? 
or was it the door of life? Or were they one and the same? My mother asked. Had he not hung the funeral wreath of purple and black ribbons upon the door? Upon what threshold had he left her? Had she ever said farewell to him? Farewell to life? Where was she now? Which road had she taken? Was it the old Boston post road where the imaginary mail coach rumbled, clattering over cobblestones cast up by the sea? Was she riding all night long, riding through a blinding snowstorm as white camels screamed under the seagulls screaming in the desert clouds? Perhaps she was in some great crusader's palace of ten thousand singing rooms lighted by candle flames. What a wild, uninhibited existence had been hers! How important she had been, also aware of her importance to others, a reformer whose works had been done in public. Has not Boston have remembered this great horseman by an equestrian statue, though Boston, sitting not easily forgetting his past, sitting not distinguishing between past and present or present and future, remembering every breath, every whisper, every dream as if it were indelible, remembering even the drunken whaler sleeping in a doorway, the dead fisherman sleeping in a scallop upon the tide, apparently forgotten this great crusader, who had fought against the great turban-winders, winding their turbans and clouds, swan-breasted mandarins with snow upon their mouths, the mother-of-pearl pagodas of Peking, and other cities upon a faint horizon, some not of this earth. She had driven a breach in the walls of Moscow. She had caused a sensation in St. Petersburg. All the czars of Russia had trembled at her approach. Court ladies had swooned. Had she not ridden from mints to pins? Pursued by wild-eyed Cossack horsemen who admired her, had she not wintered in Archangel, summered in a frozen clime? She had crossed Siberia many times by foot. She had come in through the Grand Central Station, sometimes with a whistling sound. She had crossed Brooklyn Bridge, Waterloo Bridge, the Bridge of Sighs, the Bridge of Lies. She had gone under all the bridges of the watery world in the black gondola, flitting like a blackbird. She had visited many hanging gardens. What a great traveler she had been, crossing so many countries in the darkness when no one knew. And should she be restrained now, she who had known no master? Death had only extended her travels, enlarging her horizon, which had never seemed limited by the perspectives of intercept or intercepting mountain peaks, or mirages, or tents appearing in the distant haze. <clears throat> had she not climbed the seventh crystal stairway, climbing above the lonely crags, which lifted their heads above the clouds, the eagle soaring in flight, the eagle's shadow on a sea of leaden-colored clouds? Had she not gone to many buried cities, and some which never were? She had gone to some which might never be. Had she not gone to Babylon, riding ten thousand nights and days, riding until she was suddenly old, until no one remembered the image of her vanished youth? Had she not entered many doors and visited the inner courts of many seraglios? Had not her way been lighted by Mr. Chandelier, the rock crystal branches lighting the dark sky, moving as she moved? Which door had she gone through, walking from room to room, down which arcade the wind whistled? Had she not crossed the shoreless sea of which there was no end, no foam of the incoming tide, pale surf blown like this milky light against this darkened window where a low star burned? There was no surf line, there were no beached brooks, no flooded twilight piers, no winches of wherries creaking like the souls of the dead, no whispering shrouds, no cockle shells upon the tide, no creeping mollusks, no singing pebbles blown along the shore, no music of friction, which was the music of creation, of creation's dissonance. No hunchback dunes moving in the wind. No beach grass or tree or bird. No long-limbed surf birds, lords of the purple dusk. Seagulls flying through the roofless, wallless house. No beacon lights. There was no sea. There was no sound of the sea roaring and booming, booming against rocks. Had she not crossed this passless desert, mesas of snow and ice, frozen salt lagoons like great staring eyes, like mirrors in a darkened room? 
My mother thought so. She felt that Cousin Hannah had gone to the most distant places, streets where the sun was shining. She had gone from pole star to pole star. She had gone to streets where the sun never shone, where it was black as ebony or coal. She had gone from world to world where probably less care than Mr. Spitzer, infinitely cautious, his eyes milky as dandelion plumes, enclosing sparks and staring in the evening light, his throat filled with pigeon cooings and worryings as a phosphorus light crossed his face in the fog, Mike crossed a familiar Boston street, talking always to himself, noting always that an old landmark had disappeared, perhaps miraculously in a city loving its dead, that the old horse fountain clogged with the autumn leaves was miraculously gone, though he had seen it only yesterday, or another old house had been torn down, perhaps while his back was turned, that he really was afraid to turn his back upon the world. There were now no hitching posts, certainly none for an old coachman wandering through his forever this forever fading or faded world, driving imaginary horses. The sky was pearl-gray streaked by mare's tails. Mr. Spitzer walked, sighing as he remembered all those things which had disappeared, perhaps including himself. But Cousin Hannah, who had known only passing scenes and who would never have noticed the absence of a street or a bridge or a tower or a town clock, had entertained no such cautions or reserves as gu guided old Joachim and horses' heads, and should she be conservative now who all her life had aggressively flaunted the conventions, rebelled against feminine politeness or timidity? She had needed no guide through mazes of this life or death or channels of overhanging rocks. Should death bring such great alterations as had already occurred? Was this justice to her? Surely, though she herself might be an illusion now, cloud and whirlwind and flying desert dust, or a wandering snowflake in a summer cloud. She had not been one to live by such hallucinatory beings. Her images my mother entertained here in this dark house, which she had not left for so many years, that she had forgotten the time of her journey, continually shifting her journey in time and space, changing the city as she changed her mind, or according to the roaring of the surf like a city. So that perhaps it was only yesterday that she had lain down for a moment on her pale blue silk divan with its golden lion hoods, asking that the curtains be drawn, that she should be awakened at three o'clock, and many years, so much had left no trace, had passed since then. She did not always know when her last journey was, perhaps it would be in the future, just as she did not know whether the house had grown larger or smaller. Sometimes she thought the house had grown larger, large enough to include almost the entire population of the dead, almost almost, for there might always be a moth visiting another lighthouse or star. Sometimes she thought the house had grown smaller. There were many reasons for these shiftings. So also she might change the time of Cousin Hannah's last journey, for who knew when or where it was? Had she not crossed Al-Sirat, delicate as a human hair stretching between two towers, the bridge over the lake of infernal fires to Muslim paradise, heaven where there should be no woman, but only the dance of the black-eyed Huris, Women and spirits who looked like women, but were not women. Where should he be not even a gray hen laying the naked egg of reality in the long, whispering grass of a dream? Where should be only the masculine domination, the golden cock crowing at dawn, shedding his feathers in the wind, feathers like golden flames lighting the world? Heaven where, as my mother proudly thought, no woman should be allowed, not even should she be, after so many transmutations. This old suffrage captain, this sheeted rider, this desert king riding the white Arab horse, had she not stormed cloud citadels, gold-topped towers, frightened great sensual pashas dreaming upon their beds of clouds, migratory clouds? Had she not triumphed over the golden cock picking the golden seeds of the sun? Did not the night descend sometime suddenly, perhaps at dawn? Was there not this shuddered dusk, this twilight, the atmosphere of perpetual grief, almost senseless? 
Should my mother address her letter to Madame or Monsieur? To what street? What house? What city? For who should know her face, my mother wondered. Her face in an inaccurate mirror of consciousness, mirror out of which a snow-white bird should fly, its long white wings drifted upon a cloud. Was she king of the living or queen of the dead? Not every lost chord could be resolved. There were wandering flute notes. Logic could not contain mystery. Time could not contain time. There were such stirrings, rustlings. Sometimes it was only a curtain blown in the wind, or a shutter banging, or the many weather vanes creaking upon the many roofs, turning in all directions, or a chimney falling in a tidal storm, caught of wasps as the sea turned to fire. Sometimes it was only the cry of a foghorn coming far out from far out to the sea. My mother heard so many things which others could not hear, not only a leaf falling on the other side of the world, but that which would be more wonderful, establishing the connection between now and then, star and star a leaf falling on another star. Indeed, sometimes she heard the stars falling like leaves into this great abyss, which was the memory of the dead. Yet who should see Cousin Hannah again as she had been in this life, or recognize the old suffrage captain, the burning ravaged eyes of that resurrected spirit who, it was known now, had been an apparition even in this life? For she had been an apparition of herself, now it seemed, her elongated shadow blowing on a wall webbed with candlelight, her head like some great cliff reaching above a sea of weltered clouds, Sometimes one had only seen her hand, her mailed fist. Sometimes one had seen only her naked foot. She remained ambiguous as that which never was. She had seemed perhaps less real than now, when she was no more. No more of this cosmography or general description of the world, its anatomy of sorrow. Now when one should only remember her, an image changed in the dusk. Was she become a man, bold as fire, puissant, invulnerable to any attack? Or was she woman? A beautiful lady in that other sphere, her dark hair whirling across her eyes so that she could not see her love, perhaps as helpless as my mother dreaming of her dark love more beautiful than earth, the equine ravisher who carried her away, he with his flowing nostrils, his long white mane, his whirling hooves, his burning eyeballs like two moons, the woman with the horse's face? How had she not changed? All definitions failed and failed again. All sharp lines were lost, wavering and blurred, for she was darkened and obscured. Was it heaven, or was it earth, as insubstantial as my mother's dreams, my mother having already died, as she believed? She being herself this pale lady with a wild dishevelment of hair, the wandering thoughts like phantoms drifting down the wind, like the reflections of faces in mirrors where no faces stared. For if a woman should be in heaven, it should not be heaven long, my mother thought, proud of her omnipotence, her ghostly powers, proud as if it were herself and not that old suffragette which had who had invaded paradise taking heaven by storm and whirlwinds of these mutations erratic of a travesty of God, that heaven should soon be this hell, this hell of chance, this creation flowering out of death, its brother, that there should be this chaos raging, raging like this earth of whistling winds, storm bells, barking dogs, gnashings and ravings, demons in every shadow. One should not know one's own, one should not know one's mother's face, one's father's face. The infant should be an old man crying in the storm, plucking at his beard.